Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. On today's show, Joy speaks with a man whose efforts have shaped and continue to shape hemp globally. Starting in Denver as one of the nation's first exclusive cannabis law firms, his firm now works with clients and lawmakers throughout the United States and the world. Let's join Joy's conversation with Bob Hoban from the Hoban Law Group. Well, hello, Bob. Thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Hey, now. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you today? Doing so well, even under these coronavirus circumstances, especially to have you on the show, Bob. I have been, you know, a friend, a colleague, but most importantly, a, a sister and a fan for a number of years now. And I remember when I first started to recognize Holden Law Group coming on the scene into the hemp world. Uh, and for me, I started to recognize it around 2014 or so, started to get these emails from, from Bob Hoban and the Hoban Law Group and really recognized Hoban Law as one of the first, if not the first, uh, premier firm in the United States uh, to really get involved with hemp on a deep issue, not a we're haphazardly adding hemp into our new cannabis practice group, but no, we're taking on hemp from a lobbying legislative policy and and true commanding effort and perspective. And and I just want to quickly say, and then we're going to go right into to all that you are and all that you're doing. But I remember when I finally got to meet you in person, and um, and it was at NoCo Hemp Expo, our favorite. Uh, hemp trade show, and uh, I had had an expert witness gig, and and because I'm I, I do that type of work, and I remember it involved a supply going to Alaska from the state of Colorado, and and the folks in Alaska wanted me to be able to attest that uh, Colorado's uh, agricultural pilot program or hemp program was in fact um, in accordance with the 2014 Farm Bill, and I remember saying, well, I can attest that the vast majority of personnel at the Colorado Department of Agriculture consider their hemp program uh, to be an agricultural pilot program, um, but that I didn't feel comfortable at the time stating uh, definitively that it was in, in compliance or in accordance with that program. And I shared that story with you, uh, this dynamic, tall, handsome attorney. And I remember you looking at me and saying, well, you know, Joy, Research hasn't actually been defined and it hasn't been tested in the courts. I mean, who's to say that collecting the names and addresses and GPS coordinates of the farmers who are applying for the hemp licenses aren't, isn't research? And I thought, oh, I love this man. I love the way he thinks he is a hero for hemp. Um, so that's when so many that that's when you won me over big time was was in that response that day. And it was just it was just such a bright uh, light. First of all, thank you for your kind, kind words. But but also. That just brings me back to the good old days. <laughs> Holy smokes, it wasn't that long ago, but figuring out what a farm bill pilot program uh, was or, or should be versus uh, the so-called clarity we have today, which is all but clear. Uh, it's uh, it's it, it's going back to a to a different point in time, that's for sure. And indeed, it is. And and I also learned from you because, of course, you were the uh, heroic firm and lead attorney on. Um, a litigation 
against the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, back in 2017, that was filed when they finalized their marijuana extract rule and included hemp in that definition, completely ignoring the you know, earthquake, or as you say, the seismic shift in cannabis policy, which was that definition, that early definition of industrial hemp in the 2014 Farm Bill. And that day uh, of those oral arguments, you told me a story about um, the development of Hoban Law Group. And you mentioned that you were actually thinking about being a judge and a trajectory changed. Can you tell us that story a little bit? Yeah, well, absolutely. So, so I, when I graduated law school, I worked for a federal court judge and a state court judge. I worked behind the scenes, uh, became very close with the judges that I worked for, uh, took on a lot of responsibility for writing orders and, and you know, understanding the judicial process from the backside. The, the, the part of the, of, the, of the judicial process that most of us don't see uh, from the public or even lawyers don't see and really understand what goes on behind the scenes. And it was really great to be a part of that. And as my practice evolved over the years, uh, we started to take on uh, one of the first firms to take on a lot of the marijuana industries work. And then around 2009, that pivoted towards industrial hemp. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But, you know, the 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 most one of the most interesting things was just how uh, opportunities kept coming during that period of time. And I go back to that situation with the two judges I worked for, one of which was a state court judge in Colorado. And he says, there's three retirements coming in the next four months. He says, I will support you. I will make sure that you're in the top three for any of those appointments that you'd like uh, in Colorado. They're appointed by the governor. They're not elected judges. So uh, I ran through the process of the first one, made it into the finals, but did not get the appointment. Um, and then the business plan, my perspective on this industry changed dramatically. I saw both the opportunity from a business perspective to build a great law firm that does what we do today, but I also saw the fact that so many people needed help, people that needed someone that was just common sense approachable to help walk them through the process and be their advocate, their attorney, so forth and so on, versus just someone that was you know, there to fight just for the sake of fighting. Fighting's good, but you have to have a reason to fight and you have to have a rationale to fight. And that's ultimately what, uh, what led me away from pursuing uh, one of those other two appointments to the bench in Colorado. Boy, would that have been a different life. And thank goodness the universe provides uh, and we got you, got to keep you in hemp because you're such an important person not only in the United States movement, in North America, and of course, globally. And before we go on to those international hemp solutions, as it were, um, let's talk for a second about how many offices does Hoban have? Could you give us an overview of Hoban Law Group and its tremendous expanse throughout the United States? Yeah, so we ultimately uh, started in Colorado. We expanded to the East Coast. Uh, we expanded into California, Washington, and Oregon all around 2012, early 2013, whereas we sit here today, we've got attorneys in 17 states across the United States and then 10 different countries abroad. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is we see the CBD uh, element of the hemp industry kind of evolve before our very eyes. Some might say it's it's it reached its peak and then it's on the decline, although I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think the idea of CBD as an ingredient, which is what it really is, it's merely an ingredient, it's not an industry in and of itself, 
was something that took a lot of long time for people to get their their mind around. Um, and having been there since the very beginning, and when I say the beginning, there are people, yourself included, that have worked so hard for decades to have social justice and criminal justice reform around this plant, whether that's the marijuana side of the industry or whether that's the industrial hemp side of the industry. So I can't take any credit for any of that hard work that went into it for decades and decades and decades, uh, going back to Jack Herrer and, and even longer than that. Um, but what happened early on was we were presented with an opportunity to opine for a company out of San Diego in 2009 about whether or not what it was selling, something called CBD, was legal. And they explained their process to me, and we went on a deep dive, as only lawyers would do. It was really sort of a nerd or geek out type project where we went in and we looked and we said, here's what Congress had done, and here's what their intention was, and here's the Controlled Substances Act. And we went through case law that we could find all over the country. And that case law, basically, this was pre-2014 Farm Bill, we created strategies for companies to sell CBD that was non-psychoactive, of course, from industrial hemp and identified that it was indeed legal under the definitions found in the Controlled Substances Act. Um, that was the very beginning of all of this for us as we got into the commercial side of the industry. And once we developed those strategies and those distribution patterns, which happened to be international in scope, um, we in large part became a go-to firm for those strategies. All of a sudden, people that were selling CBD, that became big business. These companies went from selling tens of thousands of dollars of product to millions of dollars of product, quite literally within a few weeks. So very, very proud to start there. And what it's evolved to today, I mean, holy smokes, nobody saw this coming, except for maybe Jack Harrow, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> so much so. And, and again, 10 countries. Hoban Law Group also has offices uh, in 10 countries in addition to 17 states. That's incredible. Uh, the amount of assistance, the amount of chopping wood, carrying water, moving forward the hemp economy that Hoban Law Group all on its own uh, does by serving that number of clients is just a tremendous contribution to the promise of the world's most versatile and valuable plant. Let's talk now um, for a minute about some other businesses that uh, that have now grown out of your vision and your love of this plant. And uh, Bija, International Hemp Solutions, let's start with those. And if I'm missing some others, I know you also have a podcast. Please, let's talk about them. Let, let the listeners know what's going on in Bob Hoban's world. Well, well, actually, let me let me come on the international component for a second, because all of a sudden now everybody's talking about this global cannabis industry and internationalization of their products and their product plans and distribution that's worldwide. And we've been focused on this for several years. And it all started, the international component started with, A, those clients, those early on clients that were selling something called CBD that we realized they were sourcing it from overseas and we began to establish the relationship. So we understood right then and there before 2014, as early as 2009, that this industry was in fact a global supply chain. And we began to build those relationships very very uh, intentionally. So then what happened was I was teaching at the University of Denver as a cannabis policy professor, not a criminal justice professor, not a political science professor, but a public policy professor. And I picked my 
focus to be cannabis policy. And the University of Denver gave me a lot of leeway. I took students all over the world on international travel courses to Uruguay, to Costa Rica, to Australia, to places in Europe. And we did multiple week travel courses to study the rollout of reformed cannabis policy all over the world. And we began writing those laws and regulations for a number of countries, Uruguay, Chinese FDA, believe it or not, um, Costa Rica, so forth and so on. The list goes to about 35 countries that we've written laws or regulations for in this space. And that's really what created the international opportunities. And of course, now everybody needs, needs to diversify their distribution. You need to figure out where you fit in this global supply chain if you're going to participate and even have a chance of succeeding. So then that led us to some opportunities to perhaps create a global cannabis supply chain. And we may have underestimated the complexity of building a global supply chain at that point in time, although it is happening in real time around us. So in 2014, when the Farm Bill was passed, that first included industrial hemp. And by the way, that's the first time in US history that industrial hemp was defined as something other than marijuana. And it was created uh, as an exception to our Controlled Substances Act. So that was a landmark piece of legislation driven by some of our, uh, our senators from the, this great state of Kentucky. But when it comes down to it, it allowed for seed importation. It required seed importation. How could you start growing hemp in the United States where hemp had been outlawed, had been banned for cultivation since the 30s and into the 40s when we had our Hemp for Victory campaign? When you look back at that time frame, you had to realize that if farmers were going to grow hemp, then you had to import it from other places in commercial quantities. And that's what we began to do. So we built a company called International Hemp Solutions, IHS, to capitalize on that. And we went out and we secured licensing agreements with some of the leading hemp institutes in the world. And yes, there are hemp institutes all around the world, Europe in particular, that house high quality hemp genetics and that have grown and, 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 and replicated industrial hemp genetics for decades and decades and decades. And the sort of star of the, the hemp institute worldwide would be the Polish Institute of Natural Fibers and Medicinal Plants. By far the longest standing hemp institute in the world with over a hundred years of service and maintaining these hemp genetics in a government sponsored fashion. And we went right to Poland and we did uh, made some agreements with the Polish government to obtain licensing rights for those varieties. We imported the largest quantities of commercial hemp seed from Europe that anyone in history has done on multiple occasions, 30, 50, 100, 200 metric tons. When you see a DHL airplane that's completely full of pallets of industrial hemp seed, it really makes you smile. I am smiling listening to this story. I mean, seeing the plane, I'll grin from ear to ear, but man, you're already making me smile. Um, boy, talk about connecting the dots, the global dots, uh, as this plant reemerges and reestablishes itself as a major player, agricultural commodity, to you know, and in industry, serving industries that we've never seen hemp serving before because we didn't have the technology, specifically nanotechnology, air and space, supercapacitors, biocomposites, bioresins, all that it can and must be um, is coming. And what a huge part 
you and International Hemp Solutions have played in it. Can we talk for a moment about Bija Hemp and um, and differentiating it from International Hemp Solutions? Yeah, so uh, International Hemp Solutions and Bija are are related. International Hemp Solutions is the parent company, the holding company, if you will. Uh, and then Bija, B-I-J-A, which is Sanskrit for seed. Um, Bija is the hemp seed company. And it's a full service hemp seed company, meaning it offers varieties that it replicates itself from those European certified genetics. It develops its own genetics with its partners, uh, Sunrise Genetics and Impello Biosciences. And it offers other third-party seeds by way of brokering arrangements. And what we were able to do was professionalize the seed sale element of the industry because what we saw at that point in time, although it's gotten certainly a lot better, at that point in time, it was one-off deals where a guy would literally roll up in a in a U-Haul truck with a bunch of clones and sell the clones for anywhere from one to $10 per clone saying that this was, you know, the greatest hemp variety that anyone's ever seen. Most of the time those plants failed that their, their rates of, of viability were extremely low. The fact that they were sold as feminized seed became exposed because most of those so-called feminized uh, genetics were actually males. So it created an answer to a problem that most hemp farmers didn't even know existed right then and there. And that was, where do you get reliable, large-scale industrial hemp seed that can be used to really turn this into a commodity worldwide? And it embraces that tri-cropping style. I've seen far too many farmers which they wouldn't do with any other crop, but with hemp for some reason, they figure that they can just grow industrial hemp for one purpose and one purpose only, CBD or non-psychoactive cannabinoid production. But what happens when you grow a crop for one purpose and one purpose only? You kind of put yourself in a box, particularly when it's a volatile pricing environment with wholesale prices up high one day and you can't move the product out the door the next day. So what what this seed genetic uh, platform does, coupled with the U.S. Department of Agriculture rules that were issued in the last quarter of 2019, really forces hemp farmers, forces them towards growing a multi-crop style or a tri-crop style where you grow vast acreage that's densely planted of a certified genetic so you can get underwriting for crop insurance, so you can get a loan to feed your family during that season. And then when it comes down to it, you harvest the top three feet of the plant. There's where your seeds are. You want seeds in a hemp plant. You wouldn't, shouldn't plant a hemp plant without seeds in it. It produces more seeds by botanical unit of measurement than any other plant on earth. Then you've got the fiber. Then you've got the cellulose, the lignin, and the sugar from the inside of the plant. And then guess what your waste product is? Your waste product is cannabinoids and terpenes. Someday that'll make you rich. The next day you won't be able to move it. That's really where things are going, and it's exciting to be part of all of that as we see it evolve, because that's been the style that's been utilized and implemented across Europe, except they haven't traditionally been allowed to use their cannabinoids, which we can use in the United States. Absolutely, and we speak about it here all the time, and I want to make sure the listeners know that there, of course, CBD and hemp extract and varieties sown for hemp extract, or of course, if you've been involved with the industry, particularly in the United States in the last five years, that seems to be what all the buzz is about. And such, as you say, uh, Bob, an area of exploitation of our farmers who are being sold essentially magic beans um, by unscrupulous seed sellers. 
when what they really need are stable, unique, distinct genetics, certified, pedigreed, and this is what uh, Bijat has to offer. And so we're not just talking about extract varieties, we're talking about fiber varieties, we're talking about grain varieties, and to your point, bringing it all together and saying, what about whole, whole crop or whole plant utilization? And we often use the example uh, of, you know, Holland, Denagro, for example, of course, Albert's out there growing his fiber hemp. Um, it's only got about three to 4% CBD in the leaves. There's not a whole lot of leaves there, but he's got infrastructure and he's got equipment as is throughout Europe to harvest that long, strong, valuable stock and all, as you say, the cellulose, hemicellulose sugars and lignans involved in it. And of course, the nanotechnology and incredible uh, carbon aspects uh, of hemp that we've discovered. Um, and then takes that top part of the plant and extracts it for the cannabinoids and has the two, uh, in, the two industries going for him. So he's got the animal bedding, hemp herd for hempcrete. He makes the prefab walls. He takes that bast fiber, the outer bark of the, of the uh, hemp stock as opposed to that inner woody core of the herd and then produces non-woven mats for insulation and grow mats and other uh, products from there. And he's got his CBD products. So, you know, and then when we get grain involved in it, forget about it. It is the highest digestible form of protein in the entire planet animal kingdom, densely nutritious, um, and of course, the perfect ratio of omegas, threes, and six. And then we could even talk about the root, uh, which of course builds tremendous organic matter in the soil. It's wonderful for building soil, those very deep, strong taproots. But also, those roots contain valuable and rare triterpenes that don't exist anywhere else in the plant, uh, which even Dr. Ethan Rousseau has begun in the last few years here to do uh, presentations on the historical and current uses for the properties found in that root ball. It's everything. And that's definitely the message. And just so grateful for Bija, International Hemp Solutions, uh, again, as it were, to really help connect um, those dots and make those genetics available to folks. And, and in my presentations, you know, when we discuss the obvious overproduction of extract varieties of hemp in the United States and, and the fact that we had several hundred 55-gallon drums, if not more, spread across the United States of hemp extract from the 2018 crop, as we were harvesting the 2019 crop, we say pivot. Please, farmers, learn to pivot into grain, into fiber, and into utilizing that whole plant. The infrastructure is coming. Clearly, we don't want farmers growing just for fiber when they don't have a fiber processing facility anywhere near them. And, and let's hear what you have to say, Bob. You know, I, I think what we're really looking for are processing plants, um, processing facilities, lest we get confused here, processing facilities within every 50 to 100 square miles of the biomass feedstock and that it will probably be regional in terms of what that processing is. What are your thoughts on that? Well, just one thing before we get to the processing part of it, which is really fascinating, but, but just to think about, have we learned our lesson as an industry when, to your point, these barrels of oil, these, these piles of biomass wrapped up in those sort of plastic wraps they call marshmallows and left out in the field because nobody can move that biomass for, for extraction, which, by the way, 
in parentheses, everybody should be making that into crude oil at a minimum because at least that'll stay longer. That's the only way that you're going to be able to get through all of this. But that's neither here nor there right now. When you think about the fact that all of a sudden the USDA comes out with rules that basically says the former high CBD varieties, if you bring a plant to full maturity and it pops above 0.3%, that's not hemp. And you're not supposed to plant unstable genetics anymore. It's not fair. It's not fair to the farmers. Now, what's the buzzword this year? CBG. Oh, let's go out and plant CBG varieties. Pay me $3 a seed for that. It just doesn't make sense, Joy. And we're going down this road all over again, thinking that we're going to get rich on CBD, smokable hemp, or CBG, when in reality, you have to look at a plant to service multiple verticals. If you don't, then you're putting yourself in a box. That is not fair to the farmers. But as it goes back to the farmers, to your point, why would or why should or could a farmer plant uh, a hemp plant that produces something other than uh, extraction capability, can, you know, cannabinoid production, when it doesn't have the infrastructure nearby? We've advised clients over the last three years uh, that come in with large pools of money and say, we want to invest in extraction. Our first thing out of our mouth is extraction is saturated. You don't see it yet because they're not all online, but do not waste your money on investment in the extraction industry. We said that over and over and over again. Well, what should we do, Mr. Hoban? The answer is always, well, you should look at other infrastructure. You, you should look at cultivation equipment. You should look at decortication. You should look at seed conditioning equipment. You should look at countercurrent technologies that can remove the cellulose, the lignin, all the good stuff from the inside of the plant. You should look at uh, pelletizing and microtized uh, pellet technologies that allow for this to be used in building materials and pallets. And instead, the vast majority, 60 or 65% of those clients still went out and invested in, in, in extraction infrastructure. Now they all call and say, we're sorry we didn't listen to you. What can we do now? So now it comes full circle back to where it was technically three years ago. Just nobody seemed to be following where the puck is going. They were looking at where the puck is. And by the time you get there, it's not there anymore. That's the mistake that people made over and over and over again. So how do you get those types of technologies to process near farmers? So you go to parts of the country that are traditionally uh, well-steeped in grain production. If you go to a grain production region, like parts of the Midwest and Montana, U USA in particular, Montana is grain country. The Montana farmers were burned early by large-scale promises from so-called CBD companies that couldn't go out and raise money. And the farmers grew a bunch of high CBD varieties, never got paid. Some of those, some of that biomass is still sitting in fields in Montana to this day, three years later. But now those folks are realizing that they have to focus on seed production. They have to focus on grain. And this is particularly salient in this point in time with this COVID virus, with the coronavirus impacting the world from a pandemic perspective. All of a sudden, you're looking at the need for natural products. This will reveal that there is a broken structure in our global food pipeline and that there are protein deficiencies around the world. What fills protein deficiencies so easily between their seeds and the oil pressed from the seeds? Industrial hemp. What provides omega-3s and omega-6s for well-balanced diets around the world? Industrial hemp seeds. So you're starting to see that all come back around to the point where if you use the right genetics, you can gross about $1,500 per acre. 
That's almost three times what any farmer has ever made in its entire life per acre selling chickpeas or corn or alfalfa. And yet somehow the promise of, of making, you know, a billion dollars per acre selling CBG is what people fall into the trap of. I don't understand it, but hopefully it's it's outlets like this where we can talk about things real with no BS that people will take some lessons away and not fall for those get rich quick schemes. I, I like the idea that you called it magic beans because that's sure as hell what it sounds like it is. When you when you're hearing uh, feminized, 97 percent germination, 18 percent CBD, zero percent THC, you know, these are magic beans, people. Absolutely. Um, that's what we're hearing. And. And I'm very proud, of course, to be a co-founder and senior advisor to Colorado Hemp Works, the nation's first post-prohibition hemp grain processing facility, and can say that we can't get enough. Please, if you are out there and you have existing, you're an existing grain farmer with bins, with combines, with all of those materials and, and equipment, and you have irrigated USDA certified organic land, we can't enter into enough of those contracts. The demand is huge. And when we say that hemp seed is the most digestible form of protein in the entire planet animal kingdom, we're talking about 50% Edison protein, very valuable, highly absorbable, rare form of protein, 60% uh, Edison protein in the protein content of that seed, along with no trypsin inhibitors, which of course are properties that prevent the absorption of protein. And they're present, trypsin inhibitors in beef, chicken, whey, soy, all of those things. And of course, that um, the full amino acid profile really that's present uh, in, in the hemp seed. So there's just no comparison. We're talking about a real game changer. Stop chasing rain, unicorns and rainbows um, and really let this plant work for your farm, work for the consumer and work for the planet. Um, before we move into some coronavirus wisdom, mister, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure the listeners know or a current message? Well, certainly, I, I, I think that uh, we have a saying around our office these days that panic is contagious, but so is leadership. And, and, and we've always tried to, to exhibit that leadership. And when you're, when you're in a leadership role, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people that disagree with you, at least initially, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that one of the places that we can all agree is that right now, with the tightening of the economy, um, with the fact that, forget about the coronavirus for a second, the fact that the industrial hemp industry was being squeezed from a financing perspective as it related to its primary cash crop, the cannabinoids, it was already being squeezed. It was already tightening up this industry to the point where you only were going to do business with people that you've already done business with, people that you knew could deliver on their promise. We're starting to see lawsuits already today that say, well, I, I couldn't deliver on my promises because of the coronavirus using certain legal theories to try to get out of co contracts. Well, that has nothing to do with the coronavirus. This was the environment before COVID-19. This was the environment where people were making promises that they had no chance absent hitting a home run one-handed with your eyes closed out of the park to go out and accomplish things that you were promising people that you were accomplishing, that you could accomplish just because it 
created an economic opportunity for you. So the tightening up of the industry is something that I think we all could agree was, was occurring and will continue to occur now. But what does that mean? It means you're only going to work with people that you know, that have been reputable, that have done what they said they're going to do. And that if it sounds too good to be true, hopefully people realize that it is indeed too good to be true. Unfortunately, previously, a lot of that too good to be true was fueled by uh, wealthy investors that really had no clue about the industry. So the first person that they saw that looked and talked the way they looked and talked, they listened to that person as gospel. And unfortunately, it led a lot of people to financial ruin. And it created an environment where the hemp industry needed to go back to fundamentals, back to basics. It's about creating a commoditizable crop that can service multiple verticals, not putting something in the ground thinking I'm gonna get rich on one part of that plant, meaning CBD or other cannabinoid production. And you know, also kind of seeing this idea that the notion behind the, the, the sexy, the exciting element of cannabinoid, that's what makes hemp exciting to so many people. If you talk about traditional grain or ag production with people, they say, ah, that's old news. We've, we've heard about that for decades and decades and decades, and that's never really gone anywhere. Well, that may have been true, but to your point 15 minutes ago, at the end of the day, new technology allows us to do all of those things and do them very well. And if you're going to run a business in this industry, you have to tighten up and you have to go back to business fundamentals, which include doing things that aren't the, the sexiest, most exciting topics. Even though you and I find grain and fiber exciting, I think most investors do not. And, and hopefully they will, because as we've seen, Technavio and others reporting a 24% compound annual growth rate between now and 2022 in hemp grain because of its vegan or vegetarian-based protein source, it's being gluten-free, and we've got this increase in celiac and gluten intolerance. So find it sexy, investors. It's pretty sexy. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Boy, and you are such a wise man. Of course, we share the wisdom imparted by the one and only Grateful Dead all the time. And I love our, uh, our way of communicating. And I love listening when you speak and others in your network and in sort of the, the hemp tribe speak when we're presenting. And, and I listen carefully for the Grateful Dead lyrics ever so strategically and cleverly placed in, in your, the major points you make, and it's so wonderful. Um, and as we talk about wisdom, though, anything here to offer around hemp, around what we're experiencing right now with this coronavirus, which I do believe we are going to come out of this a better world, an improved world, a more unconscious world. Does my heart absolutely break over the um, challenges and problems and suffering that this virus is causing, particularly to those who are socioeconomically deprived? Um, but, but if we could get some goodness out of what's happening here. Do you have anything to share for us as it relates to hemp or, or others, other things about life on earth? Well, yeah, I, I think that um, it's important to just set the record straight on a lot of different things. And that is, it's not insensitive to talk about business and people's small business and medium-sized business opportunities during this time of crisis. It is absolutely not insensitive. There are people that have given their all 
cashed in their 401ks, taken their children's retirement accounts to build businesses in this brand new industry. This is all that they have and that's all that they know. And if they're not provided with some sort of hope and insight, providing them with questions to ask and then answers to those questions about what is going to happen when we do, to your point, come out of this thing as a whole, sort of better and stronger as, as a world, as a society. Um, I think it's our responsibility to talk about these things in that perspective. That doesn't mean we lose an ounce, not even for a second of our humanity, caring about people helping out when we can. But it is important for people to understand what is next and that the sun's still going to come up every single day. And that means that the world moves forward. And if you're not looking forward to how you can continue to participate and come out of this thing uh, from a stronger business perspective, then you're not really doing your job to your investors, to your partners, or to your family. And, and that's kind of the insight that we hope to, to bring. But the one word that really typ typifies for me what's going to happen going forward, especially as it relates to our cannabis industry as a whole, and you know the hemp industry included within that purview, is collaboration. And it does not matter how strong you were based on your own measurements of success going into this pandemic. It doesn't matter if you were on an upward trajectory or if you had obtained investment or you were slated to, to make a particular financial target goal for your company in a, in a particular quarter or a year. You can't do those things alone any longer. It doesn't matter if you're a service provider, a farmer or a manufacturer, you will have to collaborate. So that is a place where people should be spending time focusing right now. Focus on what your network has. Who are people that you know and trust? Figure out ways, not just conceptually say, hey, how can we work together? That's a great conversation starter. But how can you create a strategic partnership, a merger, a joint venture, a, an acquisition? All of those things are things that you need to be advancing right now. Because again, it does not matter how strong, how much distribution you had and how much uh, your, 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 your balance sheet, how, how positive it was at the end of 2019 or even a month ago. You're not going to be able to do it by yourself any longer. That's a fact. This would have happened in three years anyway with natural market-driven consolidation in an industry. But now it's the pandemic that's driving this. And the sooner that we come to grips with that fact, all of us, every single business in this brand new industry, because in the big picture, we are small potatoes compared to other industries that have been around for decades and decades and decades. So we must align. We must collaborate. And then last, be careful what you put into the ground. If you plant ice, you're going to harvest wind. If you plant CBG, you might not come out of the other side of this tunnel with any profits to show for it. So please understand that you should embrace this tri-crop full service model. Of course, that depends on the infrastructure nearby, but collaboration and being smart about farmers farming is really what we need to look forward to. And those are the things that are going to get out of this get us out of this thing without too much of a, uh, a hitch in our step. So beautiful. And of course, for the deadheads out there, I hope you just caught if you plant ice, you're going to harvest wind. I'm going to wrap it up with a Hobanism, and that is coopetition. Coopetition is a term that I believe you coined. If you didn't, I always attribute it to you when I use it. What you are talking about here is coopetition. Stop with this idea of competition. 
and cooperate. The only thing that is going to save mankind is cooperation. And the only thing that is going to allow hemp to be everything that it can be and serve all of the industries that it serves, which is basically every single need of humans and animals on the planet, it's going to be through cooperation. Bob, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you for everything that you do for the re-emerging, re-establishing hemp crop. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime, Joy. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.